book of Esther, chapter 1. Now, do you ever really feel like you're totally insignificant, though, when it comes to being a player on the world stage? Like, for instance, you kind of think that the world is just kind of passing you by, you're lost in the sea of humanity, and, and sometimes it seems as if God is just absent. I mean, where is God, like today, when we look at the political world stage? I mean, take countries like Russia, North Korea, China, United States, Iran, Syria, and you see all these powers moving. I mean, every day I kind of look at my little news app, pull it up to find out what's going on next. And it's just like, where's God in all this? What's happening? Does God actually keep his promises or have we come to a place where the world has spun out of control of God? Have we got to that place? Well, that question was on the forefront of the minds of the people of Israel 2,500 years ago. It seemingly looked as if God was just absent and the world was out of control. And that is why we have the book of Esther. This book is meant to radically change our thinking about God and his ability to guide and govern human history. And in order to understand this book... If you're really going to understand the book of Esther, you have to understand the historical background uh, surrounding it. And so let's begin, first of all, with the people of Israel. People of Israel, you remember, they're the ones that God actually, they're his promised people. They were in Egypt. They were slaves. God rescues them. He brings them out. They traverse and they have a little wandering for 40 years. They eventually make it to the promised land. And then God actually allows them to continue to grow and flourish. David has the vision for a temple in which God's physical presence would reside and this physical temple would represent that. Solomon was the one who built it and Israel was on a heyday. God had established this covenant with them. Listen, if you allow me to be God of your life, if you follow my commandments, if I am the joy of your life and existence, things will be well and because I want you to know my love. On the other hand, if you choose to disregard me, you disobey my commandments, you set me aside, you go and abide and follow all the idolatrous practices of the very people that I saved you from, I will hand you over to another nation and they will dominate you. In fact, they will actually haul you off and you will go to a place you never even thought you'd ever be. And so that was the covenant. And of course, you know that the, uh, the Israelites, if you want a picture of what wickedness looks like when you got all the truth in your hand, all you have to do is study the history of Israel. In the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., the Assyrians haul them all off. And it was brutal and it was ugly. You'd have thought that the southern kingdom, Judah, would have learned their lesson. God's serious about this covenant. But, of course, that wasn't the case. And 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar, comes in to that southern kingdom. And they take it over and they literally destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They burn it. And they haul off the southern kingdom, a lot of these Jews, and they haul them off to Babylon. Just like God said. Now, what takes place is that there is another empire on the rise. It is the Medo-Persian Empire. And a guy by the name of Cyrus in 538 B.C., overwhelms Babylon and he becomes the world ruler of the media Persian or the Pedo, the Persian media Medo empire. In fact, we got a map of it when he takes over, 
He is the ruler of the largest empire ever known to man. That is about three million square miles, a little smaller than the continental United States in terms of of area. And he is the king. He Cyrus rules it and reigns it. Uh, This is this is what we find here at this place when the the Medo-Persian Empire is that we've got a guy who now dominates and he's here still hungry for more. You see Greece in the green. Well, he wants that peace. Okay, you think he's got this massive empire. You ought to be happy with that. No, he wants Greece. And so what takes place here is when he passes away, his son Darius actually goes and he initially conquers Greece. He actually is, you know, really enters with this uh, relationship where he now actually even owns Greece. But you remember there is a famous battle, the Battle of Marathon, where the Athenians actually kick out Persia. And so Darius, actually the son of Cyrus, makes his way back to Persia. And he is, he's mad, he's been defeated, and he swears vengeance. And he starts amassing an army that he is going to then to haul back to Greece and he's going to conquer them. But he dies while he's amassing this army. And the quest for revenge falls to his son, the king, the world ruler that we meet in the book of Esther. In Greek, his name is Xerxes. In Hebrew, it is Ahasuerus. And that's what we find in verse 1. We find that this now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now let me just tell you a little bit about this. Ahasuerus comes into power at age about 32. It is 486 B.C., He is going to revenge, take his revenge out on Greece. He's going to fulfill his father's wishes. He's going to build and amass a massive army. Now, there's things that you need to know about Hazarias, and we have so much information about these Persian kings because there is a Greek historian named Herodotus, and he writes in depth about these kings. And we know a lot about Xerxes or his Hebrew name, Hazarias. Xerxes is his Greek name because he wrote about it in the history of the Persian War. Now, he, he rules this massive empire. In fact, notice what it says. He reigned from India. This is all the Indus River. Okay, that's kind of over in modern-day Pakistan, all the way to Ethiopia, okay, kind of northern Sudan area. He reigns this entire area. Notice they don't talk about Greece because he's not reigning that. He's over 127 provinces. Now, you need to realize this is, this is a massive undertaking to rule an empire like this. I mean, you've got Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, in these modern-day countries. Why, he reigns over all of them. That is, that is no small feat. Now, there's some things that you need to know about Xerxes or Herasarius. Who are we dealing with? What kind of king is he like? Well, let me give you this inscription that he actually has written. We've actually unearthed this. It's at, found at the, nearby the van of Citadel. And this is what Xerxes writes of himself. Listen to this. Quote, I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings. Sound familiar? King of countries containing many kinds of men. King in this great earth far and wide. He sees himself as a world ruler. He's treated like a god. And so this is the king, the king Ahasuerus, Xerxes, that we find here in verse 1. And notice in verse 2, in those days, as king Ahasuerus sat 
on his royal throne, which was at the citadel of Susa. Okay, now let's talk a little bit here. First of all, you see a picture of the citadel of Susa. This is located in Iran, or what remains of it is. Okay, this was a massive fortress. It's built up on a hill. It has a wall that is two miles long that wraps around it. It is virtually impenetrable. It is massive. He feels completely safe there. And notice it states that he is seated on his royal throne. Ahasuerus loved his throne. In fact, his throne really symbolized the man. So, for instance, uh, you couldn't, like, just as a tourist attraction, like, go to the citadel and, like, look, there's Xerxes' throne. Hey, kids, why don't you hop on there and we'll take a picture of there? Because if you even got near it, if you touched it, they're going to kill you. You're dead. It's like that. In fact, you couldn't even walk on the rug in front of it. You, it, was, it was untouchable. And Ahasuerus loved his throne so much that when he would go off to battle, he would have his bodyguard called the Immortals. They were 10,000 highly trained, skilled, vicious soldiers. This was his personal bodyguard. They'd carry him around on his throne. They'd set him up on a place where he could watch the battle and he could watch a massive Persian army that always could overwhelm any foe they were facing. And he would watch them conquer as he sat on his throne. And even the portraits that we do have of him, he appears almost godlike as he's sitting on this throne. So he is dominating, and he is at the citadel, and so as we see here in the book of Esther, he's seated on his royal throne, and he's at the citadel in, C- in Susa. In verse 3, it tells us that it is in the third year of his reign. In this third year, this is 483 B.C., in this third year, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And Herodotus tells us what is going on. He is winning the allegiance of all of his army rulers, all of his provincial kings, everybody that is in some position of power, he is winning them over. It's kind of like a guy who takes out a particular client and he wines and dines them and takes them to a really fancy restaurant and says, hey, come on. Anything you want. It's on the company. We'd like you to be happy here. And, you know, so you go like whatever the most expensive thing on the menu is. That's what I want. Right. You know, well, that's what he's doing. He's winning them over. And you're going to find out that he's going to show them just how wealthy he is because he wants them to know, listen, you go with me. I'm going to be able to richly reward you. I will supply everything you need. And we are in this together. In fact, Herodotus actually writes of what what he's proclaiming and what he's telling them. He says the king's words were these, quote, My intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellenspont and march an army through Europe against Greece, that thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and against my father. Okay, so he wants to build a bridge. He's going to cross over that little narrow strait from Asia to Europe. And he says, I am going to take him over. In fact, he had aspirations not only to take over Greece, but all of Europe. This is Ahasuerus. This is Xerxes. And he's reigning and he's ruling. He thinks he's the king of kings. And so he's having this massive party. And notice what it says, verse 4. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. How about that? A six-month party. Now, it wasn't likely that he brought everybody in to hang out for six months because he's got to maintain control of his empire. Right. 
And so what he did, he likely brought in section at a time. He brought them in and he just exposed them to all this wealth. They had this massive party and he's winning their allegiance to go and attack Greece. Now, verse five, you've got the party of all parties. If you thought that what takes place on New Year's Eve uh, in New York would be a massive party, that pales in comparison to the party he throws in verse five. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were in who were present at the citadel in Susa from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So everyone, he brought them all in because now he's got, he's sealing the deal. In fact, even if you were a resident, you got invited to come to the citadel. If you were a poor person and you would never, ever go to the citadel. Well, now you get to go. And now the king just exposes the immensity of his wealth. If you want to see one of the most colorful and descriptive verses in the Bible, look at verse 6. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold. You guys have couches of gold in your house? You do? Okay, I want to see that. No, okay, you're, no, probably not. They would actually eat by just sitting on these couches. And, the, and so he's got everywhere. And silver on a mosaic pavement. Get this. What are we walking on? Porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl, and precious stones. Can you imagine if you were like one of the peasants that lived nearby the citadel? And you're like taking this like purple I mean, everywhere. And, and you're like, what are we walking on? You see all this iridescent material and pearls and quartz. And you're just like, wow. Man, you're walking on things that you could never even afford ever. And what he's doing is he's overwhelming you with its wealth, his power, and his prestige. And look at verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. Okay, so not only are you eating everything, but he's supplying all this drink for you, okay? And look at this. Verse 8. Now, the drinking was done according to the law. How many of you think it'd be a good idea to have a law on the drinking that's taking place at this party? Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And the Persians had a law. But look at this. This was the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. So the Persians actually had this law that if you were in the presence of the king, you could only drink when he was drinking. So he's drinking. King's drinking. You get a drink. So during the seven-day party, they said, guess what? We're going to change the law. The law is there's no drinking law. You drink as much as you want, as often as you want. You don't have to wait for the king. You can do it whenever you want. Now, I can just tell you that I've been to enough of my family and extended family weddings to tell you that open bars are a very bad idea. Okay? (laughs) Sounds like maybe you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you see people do crazy, stupid stuff that they would never do if they were thinking halfway clearly. This is a massive party. Some of the estimates that scholars have think that there are about 50,000 people for you event planners. How would you like to run that? Food, drink, entertainment, 50,000 people, inebriated, not thinking clearly. That's what's going on here. There is also another party being held simultaneously. Verse 9. Look at this. Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to to King Ahasuerus. So here we have the queen 
And she decides that she's going to have a separate party. Maybe she didn't want to mix up with all the drunken soldiers and diplomats, but she has her own party. Now, you need to know who this woman is. And I, once I start giving you some details about who she is and her character, you're going to find out this must have been a wonderful marriage. Okay, Queen Vashti. Herodotus, Herodotus actually tells her her, her Greek name is Amestris. Okay? Vashti is her Persian name. Amestis is her Greek name. And Herodotus actually gives us some details about her, and he portrays her as a very powerful woman and a very vindictive woman. So, Herod- so Herodotus writes that Vashti, Vashti made a woven long robe that was multicolored, and she apparently put this all together, and she presented it to her husband, just as a means of showing her love and affection and, and wanting to have a marriage built more than on just, you see me every once in a great while. Okay? Because this king has concubines, and they probably don't have hardly any friendship. It's, it's the worst foundation for a marriage ever. So she's trying to win the affections over of her husband, whom she's married to, and so she makes him this beautiful robe, and it's multicolored. But Xerxes, not only has he got a guy who's got a major anger issue, and he thinks that he's God, really a bad combination if you're for marriage, but he also, he, he actually, he pursues any woman that he wants, whenever he wants. So, for instance, his brother and his wife. He actually has a, an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And one time he goes and visits, and then he actually discovers his brother's daughter. Her name is Atenta. And he sees her, and he begins a immoral relationship with her. And this, this girl so wins over Xerxes, Ahasuerus, that he says, you know, I will give you whatever you want. I will give you gold, I'll give you cities, I'll give you an army, whatever you want. Well, guess what she wants? She wants that multicolored robe that his wife gave him. And he's, he's like, no. And apparently he's like trying to convince her to take anything else. He keeps loading it up. Well, you could have cities. You'd have an army, whatever you want, as much gold as you could swim around in. And she goes, no. She's just a young girl. She goes, I really want that multicolored coat that you've got. That's what I want. And she takes it. Well, how do you think Vashti is going to handle that? Well, Vashti actually discovers this. And she actually sees the coat on this niece of hers. And so, on King Xerxes' birthday, at this birthday banquet, Ahasuerus, we have a birthday banquet, and Queen Vashti decides that she wants a gift. And the gift that she wants is Atenta's mother. And so, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, hands over his brother's wife and if you want to get a picture of what Vashti looked like and what vindictiveness looked like, she mutilates this woman. She, cut, she cuts off her breasts, nose, ears, lips, and she feeds these body parts to dogs. This is who we're dealing with. Now, we find her in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women. I don't know if this was a Tupperware party or a little Mary Kay cosmetic gathering or whatever, but she's got her own party going on. And all these women are around him. And in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, what's happening? We got this seven-day party of all parties. These guys are drinking their hearts out. And look at verse seven, verse ten. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, when the Old Testament refers to the heart, it's not so much speaking of the affections that is the place of reason and of will. 
okay? And there's some things that you need to know about intoxication with the Persians. Persian nobility thought that they were in touch with the spiritual world when they were drunk. And so they actually never made major decisions apart from being fully inebriated. I know that sounds like a great way to run an empire, but that is how they did it. Now, uh, what they would do is that when they eventually sobered up, they would actually think through again their decisions that they made when they were completely drunk to just see if there was any reason or logic to it. And they also, Herodotus tells us, that the Persians never trusted a decision that wasn't made when they weren't inebriated. Okay? So it's like completely backwards to how it should be, but that's how they're running the empire. And so they're on their seventh day of this party. You can imagine they are far gone. You can almost picture Xerxes, Ahasuerus, kind of just hanging over his throne. And while he is merry with wine, he commanded uh, Mehuen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. If you're looking for names for kids, there you go. Especially Carcass. Can you imagine? Here's my son, Carcass. Okay. It's out there. It's, it's free for the taking. I've never met Carcass or any of these other guys. All right. Or Bigtha. That'd be a good linebacker name. But anyway. He's got, and these are seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Okay. Now, eunuchs was a ubiquitous feature of Persian nobility. A eunuch was a male who was castrated. And they had lots of eunuchs. And let me just tell you what would take place. You see, the king could never trust his wife. Imagine why, okay? Treats her like dirt. You know, he's got all these other concubines. So in order to have people that would interface with his wife and all these concubines, what he did is he castrated all these males. And even when they would take over a a country, he would make these vassal states send over generally the best-looking boys. They'd castrate them, and they would train them up for service in the government. Eunuchs became highly esteemed officials, and they actually had won the heart of the, the king because they could be trusted not only with his harem and not only with his queen, but they were involved in affairs of state. And so these are men of great privilege. And so he makes this command to these eunuchs, and he says this. This is what I want you to do. To a guy who was completely drunk for a six-month-long party, this sounded like a good idea. Verse 11. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes. For she was beautiful. In fact, actually, Vashti actually means beautiful one or beloved one. And so he's got this idea. The, the Jewish tradition on that, this verse is that he was actually making the request that she be brought in wearing her crown only. Fully nude, just wearing the crown. That sounded like a good idea to him. And so he makes this a very big public affair. He brings all the seven, his top seven eunuchs, he brings them in, he makes this public affair to go during Queen Vashti. You could just see this raucous crowd thinking, yeah, we're going to have her come in. That sounds like a good idea. Well, he, he's, he's making his plans. He's thinking about it. The people are probably pretty excited about that. Probably what he's doing, he's like, He saw his wife like a trophy wife, okay? And this is really probably the grand culmination of actually bringing us all together. He's going to rally them around, similar like in Britain, where they actually bring the queen out, and that just just evokes patriotism. Yeah, we're going to serve, and we're going to even fight and die for our queen. That's kind of what he's doing here. And she is the grand finale, and they are not going to be disappointed. And so they, he says, go bring her, and he makes this public display of it, and verse... 
12, how do you think Queen Vashti, from what we know of her, how do you think she's going to respond to this? She's going to say two words. No way. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And she saw these eunuchs all the time. Then, how do you think the king's going to handle that? You got a guy who's got a few insecurity issues and yet he thinks he's God? Look at, you want to see what it looks like? Verse 12. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. I mean, literally, he is, he's got his reputation and his ego on the line, man. He becomes infuriated because these eunuchs come back and they're not carrying the queen with her. And so he comes unglued. He's mad. He's infuriated. And I'll just tell you, like Proverbs 14, 17 says, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. You want to see what that looks like? All you have to do is keep reading. He is drunk and he's angry. Just what we need is another drunk, angry guy, right? And that's him. And he doesn't, he doesn't have a friendship with Vashti because would you do that to your friend? You know, God wants us married to one spouse and we're supposed to be friends. You don't do this to friends. He doesn't have a friendship here and he's not thinking clearly. What do you guys, you've got a political figure driven by hormones and hubris. He's infuriated and he's mad. And so what he does, verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice. And in the king's court, he would have seven officials that could approach him without being invited. They were the advisors. They knew the time. They knew how people would respond to how the king was acting or what he was saying. And whatever the king said was law. And they were also very accustomed to helping give guidance to the king. These were his top advisors. Now, he calls them in. He, got, he has the guys that are good at law and justice. And he, they were close to him, verse 14. And you have Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persian media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom, and they are wrestling with this one situation because now the king's party looks like it's crashing. Can you imagine what, what this, the turmoil and what everybody's like, whoa, what's going on here now? How is Azarias going to handle this? And this is the question they're wrestling with. Verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. I mean, think of it. If the king can't get his queen to obey him, how in the world is he going to rule an army? How will that work? This is all on the line. This woman has stood up to him. He's looking really bad at this point. He brings his wise men in. He says, you've got to help me figure this out. How are we going to deal with this situation? Because it's all becoming unraveled. I mean, who knows what could happen in a situation like this? And so he brings his seven wise guys in, and they scheme, and they think, and they plan, and watch this. They're going to take a crisis in the citadel, and they're going to turn it into an international crisis. Look at this. Verse 16, in the presence of the king and the princes, Mimukin, he is obviously the spokesperson for the seven, said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes in 
all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known, become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. What he's saying there is like, you know, he asked her to come and she disobeyed. And now this is being tweeted everywhere. I mean, it's trending right now in the Hebrew. It's, it's going out. And it's going out that the queen could tell the queen, king, no. And that word is going out. And we've got all the women throughout the entire empire. And right now they're practicing the word, no, no, no. Their husbands are at work. They don't know what's coming for them, right? And when they walk in the house and they think they're the little gods in their own little domain, and they throw out a little order, the, queen's, the queen of that house, that woman's going to say, I just looked this up on the internet. It says, no, no, no. Like, you know, and so he's like, you've got yourself a massive problem. And the queen is responsible for it. What she's done is she started a women's liberation movement, and this is going to undo your Persian empire unless you act decisively and quickly. By the way, when you've got people of that kind of influence, what they're doing is they're making themselves even far more important to the king. They're amping it up. They're playing upon his fears. And so they're saying, this is a huge deal. And so then they've got the answer. Verse 18, this day the ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. And so if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of the Persia and media so that it cannot be repealed. And the law of the Medes and the Persians is that once it was given, you could never take it back. And this is the, they say, this is the new law. This is what's going to happen in our domain. That Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. You see that? You're saying, You've got to go find yourself someone a lot better than her. Well, she's beautiful and she's got character. You think that's going to be easy to find? All Hazarius is saying is, I just want someone who obeys me. And notice what they said, that she can no longer come into the presence of the king. These guys are smart because they never want to see Vashti again because they don't want to end up being the next little birthday gift. You know what I'm saying? They do not want to see this queen. So they're saying, you need to completely dismiss her. You need to get rid of her. Now, they didn't call for her death. They called her to be divorced and completely set aside. And so, verse 20, when the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Let's stop. So you women, you think that's really going to work? Do you make a law? Can Parliament or our government make a law saying you need to respect and honor your husband? That is really going to change your heart? No, it doesn't work that way. And it's not going to work. This law, it's, it's unattainable. It's unenforceable. They, there's, but what's happening here, he's created this international crisis. They want this law to go out. And I just want to tell you something, folks. The decisions that you make are oftentimes only as good as the advisors that you have. 
You've got folks that have hidden agendas or weak minds or really aren't that smart or certainly not godly, and they are advising you on what you should do with your marriage or should you divorce or how you should move forward. You're oftentimes only as good as your advisors. And here we have the most powerful man in the world, and he's now being run by these seven wise guys, and they turn this into an international crisis, and he follows through. Verse 21, this word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. And so he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. And they had really an amazing system of disseminating information. In fact, our U.S. Postal Service is actually based on this same system. Remember the Pony Express? Well, they had a version of that. And they could, every 20 miles, they had this transfer point and messages that came from the king. Because when he spoke, it was law. It could go out throughout the empire and it could be as quick as possible in an ancient era. And so he has this out. He has it translated. And this is the new king's law. And they are to give this royal position to another. Now, I'll just tell you this. When you've got a guy who thinks he is God and he is prone to being inebriated and making bad decisions, he is not going to be a good leader and he's going to be a far worse husband. So what takes place here? Here we are at Esther at the end of chapter 1. Well, Ahasuerus... He does eventually recover from this debacle that takes place in the citadel. Now, in 483 B.C., there's something that you need to know. There's probably a couple of reasons why Queen Vashti said no. First of all, uh, she probably understood that this was to go and display herself in, in a lewd manner. She didn't have nothing of it. In fact, the Persians did things like that, but they had concubines to go and display that kind of beauty. But a queen would never do it. And by forcing her to have her wear her, her little crown and doing that, completely beneath her position. But the second thing is that this is 483 B.C. Vashti gives birth to Xerxes, Ahasuerus' third son. His name is Artaxerxes. And he becomes the world ruler when Ahasuerus dies. In fact, Queen Vashti actually emerges again back in history. And she becomes a major player on the world front. But what takes place with our man, King Ahasuerus? Well, in 481, so a couple years after this major party and all the crashing that comes with that, in 481, he is able to amass a troop, uh, all his troops of about 250,000 in Turkey. And he is going to go on a rampage and he's going to take it out on Greece. But things did not work as expected. So when they're making their march, they come to Hellespont, and just like he had said, they're going to build a bridge. And so Hellespont is this area between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. At its narrowest point, it's about three-quarters of a mile long. He gets his engineers to design a bridge so he can march his army over there. Well, they're trying to build this bridge, and a storm comes, and it actually destroys it. I want you to get a picture of Xerxes. We already know that the guy's a maniac, and he's angry. So what he does after this bridge is destroyed... He takes all of the engineers that were involved in this project. If you're an engineer, how would you like this for a boss? And he has them beheaded. And to take out his vengeance against the sea, he actually 
and takes his soldiers, has them march into the sea, and they start lashing the sea 300 times, okay? The guy's insane. And they take shackles, and they beat the sea, and they even stab the waves with these red-hot branding irons, all because the king says, you need to do this because I'm mad. Can you imagine what it would just be like around a guy like that? This is Ahasuerus. He's in an irrational rage. But then he eventually does get a bridge built across because the second guy, he finds some more engineers. I can assure you, they're like, our life depends on getting this bridge right, right? They get it right, they march over, and they make their way. And they actually go into Athens and they sack the city, but ultimately they are defeated. Uh, What happens is there is, at the Battle of Thermopylae, what happens is a relatively small force of Greek soldiers are able to put the Persians on the run. In fact, this battle of Thermopylae is still celebrated. and They make movies about it and plays. He's got about 300 Spartans and a few hundred others, and they literally are able to put the Persians on the run. It infuriates Xerxes. But then a month later, we go from bad to worse, because after the battle of Thermopylae, you have the battle of Salamis. And Salamis is this narrow strait, and what the Greeks did is they had an inferior navy, to the Persians. The Persians had about 300 battleships. They drew them into this narrow strait, but these ships were so big and so cumbersome, and they had them all lodged in there, and the Greeks took advantage of that, and they sunk almost the entire Persian navy in this very famous battle of Salamis. So now you've got the Persian navy is sunk, his, his army has been defeated, and so Ahasuerus heads back to Persia, back to Suda, Susa, mad, defeated and he leaves a general in charge this general eventually is also beaten back and so that's what we find here going on after chapter one chapter two picks it up when ahasuerus returns after total defeat now i don't want you to fall into the trap thinking like you know what god he doesn't really know or even care or he's not involved in the affairs of the world because it certainly may seem like that it may seem like that to the, Persia, to the people living in Persia, especially the Jews. It kind of seems like that way today, right? I mean, you never hear in the news about God or God has done this. Oh, no. He's on the sideline. But let me assure you, he is accomplishing his will and he is governing and guiding history. And it will come to its ultimate end. You know, when you read this, you go, there's got to be a better king than Ahasuerus. Because Esther is one of the final books written in the Old Testament. And then we come to 400 years, the silent years. And the Jews are left thinking, we have got to have a better king than this. And there is a better king that is promised. Promised in the Old Testament, like in 2 Samuel. And a better king arrives. And his name is Jesus. And let me tell you that King Jesus is a much better king. Xerxes, he rules by passion. He is evil. He has subjects and he intimidates and he runs by fear. King Jesus, on the other hand, he comes in humility. He is truly the God who became man, the God man. And he redeems a people for his own self. Xerxes wanted people to bow down to him in fear. Christ has literally billions of people who worship him and do so willingly with joy and rejoicing. You know, we don't we aren't reading the writings of Xerxes anymore, are we? But we are reading and fixed and focused on the scriptures of Jesus because he's given us these writings. And I'll just tell you, there is a far greater king than Ahasuerus. 
aren't you tired of these kind of kings? Then you've got to be tired of this kind of thinking. Like if we could just get the right president, if we could just have the right guy in power, it'd all be great. Has that ever worked? No. And yet, every four years, we get on a bandwagon and we think like we could just get the right president and it'd all be glory. I'm here to tell you there is one glorious king and his name is Jesus. I'm not telling you not to be involved politically and not to vote for someone that actually has priorities that somewhat match up with the Bible. What I am telling you is don't fix your hope on any king but Christ. King Xerxes, he reigned with all sorts of passion for sin. King Jesus, he became the very savior for sin by living a righteous life, dying on a cross and rising again to authenticate to the world. You want a real king with a real kingdom and a kingdom that will not end? It is found in me and you who trust in me are a part of my kingdom. So you know what happens? The fallen kings of this earth, they make our hearts long for the perfect king of the universe. And we live by faith because the book of Esther is found in the storyline of the Bible. And all of scripture points to Jesus Christ, the king of kings. So when God seems absent and the king's Act like gods. You know what you and I do? We look to Jesus, who is the King of kings. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing book of the Bible. And Father, as we are just diving into the book of Esther, would you open our eyes to your grandeur and glory? Help us to be able to appreciate the history and your dealings in the past so we will have great confidence of your working in the future. May our priorities line up with you. Give us a vision of your greatness. We thank you for Christ, the one true king. It is glorious to be in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.